Today on Not Cleared, we have a news roundtable with Kyle Scheidler, Mike Waller, and Adam Savitt. And we start by talking about the tragedy that happened a couple weeks ago in Waukesha, Wisconsin, that as of now has left six dead and 60 plus injured. And we get into just the narrative that surrounded this from the media, whether or not this could be classified as terrorism, and just more generally how the news cycle around this story seems to have all but vanished just a couple weeks after this attack happened. We then get into the Iran nuclear deal because the Biden administration has started negotiations with Iran earlier this week to try and re-enter the deal. And we talk about whether or not this is a good idea, what the downstream effects of this would be, and why they are trying to get back into this deal. We talk about a recent meeting that the Taliban leadership had with the United Nations a couple of days ago where they are trying to gain entrance into the UN and become a member there. And we talk about why, at least for now, it appears that they're not going to be let into the UN. And we finish by talking about FARC, which is this Colombian rebel group, which currently is on the United States terrorism list, but the Biden administration is reportedly preparing to remove FARC from the U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations. So we talk about why they're doing this, and Mike gives a really good history and background of who and what FARC are. So two Sundays ago on the 21st of November, Daryl Brooks ran his car into tens of people. I think the count is, what, 60 at this point that have been injured from it? And a sixth person just died a couple of days ago from their injuries. Um, they varied in age. Some were little toddlers and some were these grannies that were in a dancing crew or something. Absolutely terrible. But when you dig a little deeper or not, you don't even have to dig deep into Daryl Brooks to see that he was kind of a sketchy person and he had a bad history with the law. And just previously, he had been arrested and released on bond two days before the crash happened, right? And yes. he was released on only a $1,000 bond. But previously, and I saw this today, and I was shocked that it hadn't been talked about more by the media, he had been arrested for running someone over with a car before. And this is just another example. It seems like every single time there's one of these tragedies, the people always have a background that kind of leads you to not be as surprised that something like this would happen. So I guess just generally, what are your guys' thoughts on this? And just the the fact that it seems like the media news cycle on this has already finished is pretty sad, in my opinion. Well, it certainly doesn't fit the media's narrative. And one thing I think we should probably include, Matt, is the prolific um, social media postings that Brooks had related to um, Black Lives Matter, supporting Black Lives Matter, uh, anti-white animus. Uh, as it was described by Governor Ron DeSantis, um, and you know, supporting uh, the targeting and defunding and abolishing of the police, uh, and just generally wholehearted support for the sort of BLM narrative that has now been just blasted out around the clock uh, over the past couple of years. And so none of this, which would appear to go towards a political motive, uh, for the attack, or could be a potential political motive for the attack, uh, <clears throat> has been mentioned by uh, the corporate press. Uh, it's only really been covered by some of the right-wing press 
and some online accounts. And otherwise, it's being totally memory hold. You had the Waukesha police that went out and immediately said that this is not terrorism, uh, although it was an intentional act. Uh, that's how they've described it as an intentional act. Uh, so he's being charged with murder. It's they're they're not. Um, they've seemed to have done away with the argument uh, that it may have been uh, an accident while he was fleeing police. That appears to not have been the case. Uh, but my question is, how do you so easily dismiss the possibility of a political motive? I, I think part of the partially the answer to that to zoom out uh, further, and this echoes. Kyle, something you wrote about in the Rittenhouse case of individual versus collective um, evaluation of of crime in general. But if we look at this individual's record, including two days before, and I believe uh, he ran over the mother of his child, presumably with the same car, two days before and was put out on $1,000 bail. But that if you look at that individual and evaluate, should should they be out on the street? Of course not. But if you look at it through the lens of equity or you look at it through the ends, uh, lens of society as a whole, these district attorneys or these um, whichever officials are in, are in charge of who's incarcerated and the population uh, in the jails that they break down by race, they simply want it to reflect the racial uh, breakdown of the community with absolutely no eye to the individual's acts or whether they, you know, under the, are, are, traditional concept of justice, whether they deserve to be out and whether it's a danger to society, simply they have these categories of race and other um, uh, metrics, and that's the level of justice they're operating on. Yeah, and Adam, this is where ideology gets into the whole question. So it's not simply a crime in this case. It is actually politically motivated and incited uh, violence and murder for the purpose of achieving a political objective, which by law is terrorism and this is what makes it turns it from a tragedy and a criminal issue to a national security issue where you have the corporate press and professional activists and um, some of the world's wealthiest people and their high-tech companies inciting mentally disturbed and ideologically motivated people like him to commit mass murder and i mean i think we should maybe give the Waukesha police a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because there is no terrorism statute in Wisconsin. So if they were to declare that this was a terrorist act committed for a political motive, uh, they would lose the case to the feds, which I can think of a lot of reasons why they wouldn't want to do that, not the least of which is because the feds uh, can't seem to find a um, BLM affiliated terrorist uh, with two hands and a flashlight. So, you know, there's a reason why local police would want to maintain control of this case and not turn it over to the feds. The feds continue to embarrass themselves uh, in investigating any case where the political motivation may be something other than, quote unquote, right wing. Uh, You know, very, we, we haven't talked about this in advance, but related to this, the FBI just recently Uh, came out with a report on uh, the mass shooter, Connor Betts, who killed nine people at a Dayton, Ohio bar. And he was a known uh, affiliate uh, with various Antifa groups. He uh, communicated with them online. Uh, He was known to have attended certain protests of theirs. And they came back and said he had no ideological affiliation whatsoever. 
So that they just the inability of our federal law enforcement to understand uh, politically motivated violence is really disturbing. Um, and it, it, it does uh, lead us to think that maybe, you know, local and state law enforcement need to take the lead. Maybe they do need uh, a, sta- a state terrorism statute in Wisconsin so that they can deal with these kinds of things instead of having to rely on the FBI, which hasn't been reliable. Do most states have a terrorism statute or is Wisconsin unique that they don't? Uh, I think this is a good, this would be a good question for our colleague, Chris Holton, who runs our state legislative outreach. Uh, I would say most now have them, uh, or at least large numbers of states now have uh, terrorism statutes, uh, but there is still a, a significant number that don't. Another question I think would be f- formally or technically, you know, Mike uh, gave the definition of uh, uh, terrorism as political motivated violence, but what would actually hold up in court? Because it seems to me um, most of the evidence uh, comes via the media and and they get it via social media. And then in cases where the powers that be, whatever, however you want to describe it, the, the, the prevail- prevailing narrative uh uh, if it's a left-wing uh, suspect, their social media disappears or gets uh, de-emphasized. Whereas the a right-wing suspect, it'll be gone through with a fine-tooth comb and every single possible angle with some sort of racial or, or right-of-center political aspect will be will be brought to the fore. Sure, and this is the real mystery of why there's no media interest in it, which gets back to uh, looking at this as a terrorist attack, as a clinical issue. We're not looking at it as a legal issue. Wisconsin has its own laws and it's prosecuting under its own laws, but as a real definition uh, for a national security perspective, it, it it was an act of terrorism, and so therefore we really have to look at this as a as an interstate, if not international, phenomenon that is now haunting Middle America. One of the questions I would like to to ask is, uh, what has Brooks himself this the the alleged perpetrator, uh, said about his motivations, because obviously that would give uh, something of a slam dunk. In a lot of these cases where you have the perpetrator killed uh, during the process of the attack, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to get a slam dunk obvious um, declaration that that it was a political motivation. Uh, But when the suspect is taken alive like this, Typically, if they have ideological motives, uh, they're pretty talkative. Now, that may not be the case here, uh, but I would not be surprised to if we learn later on down the road uh, that actually Brooks made some statements indicating uh, that he did have some motivations. So I would look for that uh, to come out later, possibly during trial. All right. So switching gears to more foreign policy topic, um, on Monday, discussions resumed between the U.S. and Iran. This all stems from Trump getting out of the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. And ever since the Biden administration has taken office, it's been one of their goals, or I guess one of their main goals is just anything that Trump undid, redo, and I think Trump undid, redo. That might have been the same thing I just said. But <laughs> they've been trying to get back into the Iran nuclear deals, which I think it's it should be universally agreed upon was a good thing that he got out of them because... Iran just wasn't respecting them, and they were still going ahead and enriching uranium, ultimately to make nuclear weapons that they could, in theory, attack us with. So these talks resumed a couple days ago, and 
all the articles I've been reading are just basically the gist of them is how good of an idea it would be for us to get back in to the JCPOA. So why is the Biden administration trying to do this in the first place? The Biden administration really believes historically in arms control and treaties with unreliable partners uh, like the Soviets or whoever else in the history. This is, this is Biden's entire history of when he was a Senate Foreign Relations Committee member was to get engaged in really arms control for the sake of the process. But every time he would a deal would be made, he would side with the appeasement side. But he, he wants the deal far more than the opponent wants the deal. So he'll cut the opponent a great advantage to the detriment of our country simply to get the deal through. But so the when we got out the deal, we the U.S. reimposed sanctions on Iran. And one of the articles I was reading, which actually made a good point in favor of it, was even with these sanctions, Iran is still going ahead and enriching uranium. They don't really care, um, which is true. So why would us getting back into the into the deal and lifting these sanctions change that, right? Well, there's a lot of money in it for, uh, uh, Iran needs a lot of American products and technology and wants to be able to uh, engage in freer trade. Uh, Its regime really depends on it and the sanctions are creating a great difficulty for it. Uh, A lot of people around President Biden, both Democrat and Republican, a lot of big businesses support opening up to Iran because it's a huge market. Uh, there's also the the uh, fear of of an aggressor state like Iran. It's it's not really reason. It's it's really a visceral fear that, and a mirror imaging. So meaning that we tend to look at our opponents the way we look at ourselves, and if we can simply come to an agreement, both sides will abide by it, and then the danger will be gone, and we won't be afraid anymore. So it's really a human weakness that motivates a lot of the Biden people as opposed to uh, principle. I think Mike raises an excellent point when he also hints at the pecuniary interest uh, that some of these peace processors or arms control processors have. These agreements end up taking on a life of their own a lot of the time. People end up dedicating their entire careers to it. Think tanks open up shops. There, there are public relations campaigns, all of these things arranged around promoting and supporting and solidifying an Iran deal. So when Trump just unilaterally nixed it, he really did uh, topple over a bunch of people's rice bowls. And so uh, a lot of the times I think people get confused because they look at things like the Iran deal and they say, what is the motivation for this and as on a national interest level, there's not one, uh, as, you, as you alluded to. Uh, but there is a bureaucratic interest uh, by various departments and agencies and, and both in and out of government. So that there's a lot of desire to keep these things going, even after it has been shown uh, demonstrably that they're not actually useful for the thing uh, that they were said to be for. So can you take us inside the head of those bureaucrats? Why are they trying to keep it just to save face for the U.S., to make it look like we can make deals with people or what? Yeah, I mean, they believe they believe in the process more than they believe in the outcome. They are supporters of the process of talking, of the process of making deals. Uh, they don't actually care that much what the outcome of the deal is or even that there is an outcome. 
I mean, look, for example, at the uh, Arab-Israeli peace process industry, and industry really is the only way to uh, describe it. Uh, you know, it's going on for decades and decades now. You know, there are people who who, who made their bones uh, in, you know, the, the peace process uh, in the Jimmy Carter administration who still dine out on a regular basis uh, because of their role in that peace process, you know. So... And this Iran deal is becoming much of the same thing. Uh, you know, I could see this, you know, going on essentially forever. Uh, the Iranians have no reason to uh, stop the discussion. They haven't obviously moderated any of their behavior. But as long as the discussion is going on, they know that uh, the U.S. will support the discussion and will support the process and will try to restrain any of their allies, uh, particularly Israel, from taking any uh, significant action. I think it's useful to zoom out too from not only the uh, inadequacy of the deal to address the Iranian nuclear program, but uh, the fact that the myopia of focusing only on the program when uh, Iran's main leverage or you know its, its main ability to mess things up in the region is more conventional or asymmetric, but not nuclear, such as drones going into Saudi oil facilities, such as their uh, proxies in Lebanon and Yemen, et cetera. To my knowledge, none of that factors into this deal. And here we are talking about the nuclear deal as well. And it it is sort of like a distraction or a charade when, you know, it's obviously it's important, but um, as far as the day-to-day -day, uh, meddling, it's not at the top of their list of tools. Yeah, yeah and you have, the, really you have the attacks on Americans in uh, in Iraq and Syria, for example. Uh, that the Iranians have used their militias, and the the, the position of these um, deal makers is everything has to be excluded other than the thing we want to make a deal about. So they don't want to let any action by the Iranians uh, affect their ability to get a deal, no matter how um, you know um, belligerent it is. Yeah, they'll excuse it away, but. Uh Kyle and Adam, there's another part of this, too, getting back a little bit. Something that's very peculiar about Washington culture and globalist culture overall, which is this craving for acceptance. And if you're part of a smooth process and you're bringing people and interests together and you're fighting off the real enemy, which is those of us who both you know, know that the process is phony and, and it's going to be a bad deal for us, then you get accepted at at all the right events and parties, and you get named to these uh, prominent academic positions and well-funded and usually foreign-funded think tank positions, and you get appointed to be an ambassador, which is the only title an American can have for life, as far as a government title. And then you get to you get to be to go to Davos and to talk to you know to be friends with George Soros and his people and and all of the the. Uh, big globalist financial machinery that then brings you on corporate boards and assures you of a, of a long and stable and very distinguished existence for the rest of your life. And then you pass that on to your successors as a professor and as an author and as, a, as an elder statesman in all these issues. This kind of craving for acceptance is pervasive here. And, and it, it, it is what motivates people more than anything else to be part of the establishment or, or a swamp, uh, to be this self-perpetuating sort of aristocracy of American diplomats and peacekeepers 
on a global scale. I mean, that's something that Morgan and I talked about a few episodes ago that that's the thing, honestly, that pisses me off the most about all the Washington people is that, yeah, they just love going to these fancy cocktail hours and getting in their black tie outfits just to go and schmooze with someone that they would stab in the back five seconds after they were done sucking up to them. And <laughs> the, that just seems like what they're doing here. I mean, Adam was talking about all the proxies that Iran has and just they're not a good regime. So why should we be trying to make ourselves look like, oh, we're so good, the United States, we're making a deal with Iran? Like, do people in the international community actually look at that and say, oh, good for the U.S., they're making a deal with Iran? Or do they see, or, or is it the same bureaucratic crap everywhere else you go? I mean, they look at it and they probably look at it more clearly and uh, to, to get their interests out of it. <laughs> probably China and Russia sitting on the sidelines looking with more pragmatic eyes about what we're doing, probably just puzzled as to why we're yeah, angling for this piece of paper and they're just ready to pick up the pieces when, when we leave. And the Europeans are always excited anytime they can rope America into a process that restrains uh, American power. So, you know, the and, and of course, a lot of the European states have very significant financial interests in Iran or or hope to have that uh, if they can get the U.S. to lift sanctions and, and other things. So it really is the case. A lot of the times we walk into these. Uh, negotiations and everybody, uh, every other country's representatives have some un understanding of what their national interest is, uh, except for the Americans whose primary interest is either personal or bureaucratic. Uh, and it really does us a, a disservice at the international level. Yeah. Or globalists too. It's, yeah. We're going to solve problems for the globe for, for whatever that means. And and then they become respected world leaders and they could meet their heads of state and get their pictures taken and get praised you know, online or wherever else they go and get those, those coveted peace prizes. It, people live for this stuff and they devote their entire careers to it. And even if you don't physically win the prize, you're the one who's the secret source for the Washington post. And if you're a secret source for the Washington post against those who are, oppose you, then you'll never get attacked by the Washington Post. So you're assured of excellent press coverage throughout your entire career. This kind of gamesmanship is what pervades the entire arms control culture. We saw this during the Soviets. And we saw, we saw how the arms control careerists uh, tried to undermine President Reagan. He, he took a very different view of arms control with the Soviet Union. He, in that case, the Soviets had had a qualitative and quantitative edge on us in certain nuclear weapons systems, and they wanted a nuclear freeze. So Reagan built nuclear missile systems both in Europe and then our strategic missile systems for the purpose of giving them away. But his purpose was really to force the Soviets to catch up with us and, and wreck their economy. And then Reagan would graciously uh, hold the Soviets as they're collapsing to give them a soft landing. So it was really a strategic initiative to defeat the USSR without use of weapons. The arms controllers hated that strategy. They went out of their minds. Yeah, I think there's a, a sense that people often have that people in the national security right, you know, the conservative national security space, hate agreements or we hate uh, discussion or we hate negotiation. And that's not true at all. Uh, but what is true is that we don't believe in 
processes for the sake of processes, and we don't believe in negotiation just so everybody will like us. Uh, we do believe in negotiations in order to extract some benefit for the American national interest. Uh, it's just been so long since any kind of process or negotiation has been organized on that basis, you know, going all the way back to Reagan, I think it's probably the last time we, we see that, that kind of attitude. First and last. Yeah. First, well, <laughs> first and last. Yeah. Maybe on that grand scale, but I think we've been gaslighted here. What about the Abraham Accords? I mean, you can, you know, take, criticize them or, you know, you could argue about their efficacy, but that they seem to be pretty quick negotiations that came out with tangible results that were in the national interest. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good example, Adam. I think, I think you're right about that, actually, uh, being an example of, uh, but it wasn't negotiating with uh, opponents, right, per se. Right. Yep. It was negotiating with uh, mutual allies to try to get those allies to cooperate better amongst themselves. Yeah, shared uh, interests. Yeah. Right. Or a common objective. Because all of those allies are afraid of Iran. <laughs> that's, right. their, that's their big, Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood are their two biggest threats. Yep. And so here is, an, you know, you have this interesting counter case where the discussion with an enemy, Iran, is sacrosanct and must continue at all costs. Uh, and yet the Biden administration has very little, if anything, positive to say about the Abraham Accords which is a very beneficial discussion and process taking place between American allies. Yeah. And then what do you see coming from that? You see the friendly Arab Gulf states, which had had, had their security interests were firmly with us. Under Obama, they started reaching out to the Russians when, when Obama reached out to Iran. So by playing footsie with Iran for a bad deal, these Arabs, they know how to haggle, right? You know, they know how to cut deals. And they saw what was happening. So they hedged their bets by by going to Putin for certain types of support, which meant that Obama-Biden policy was really benefiting Putin. It's happening again right now. Where you, you never had Saudi Arabia, never had relations with Russia. Now it's opened up military relations with Russia. And of course, Qatar, which is not our friend, not part of the Abraham Accords, is already a... Uh, a uh, so-called ally, kind of ally of Russia, as it pretends to be with us. And then you have now an entree also for China to come in and sell weapons to these friendly countries. So this is harming American commercial interests and defense interests just so that the arms controllers can cut their deal with the Iranian mullahs. Yeah, I think people, Mike, don't um, pay much attention to how various um, other states view these these agreements and negotiations that the U.S. gets itself into. So as you you know as you illustrated, the the Saudi take or the you know or the Emirati take as to what it means for us to be uh, constantly flirting with the Iranians, uh, they take a very different lesson from that, and they say we may need to find another patron if uh, if the U.S. is is anxious to get into bed with the Iranians who are our opponent and who uh, constantly threaten us, then we need to find somebody else who will help us preserve our interests. So it's not, it's, there's a constant view that, you know, it's cost free to talk and it's cost free to negotiate, but that's not true. It's never true. No. And then the other thing we're giving up with this JCPOA arms control negotiations with Iran is we are stabbing the Iranian people in the back 
you have a large, organized, many years long resistance movement there that's growing again. There's no way that a, an American president could come out even verbally in support of those freedom movements if he's trying to cut a deal with the mullahs running the regime. So the American president allies himself with the mullahs against the Iranian people and their movements that could really overthrow those mullahs if only we would help them. And then a thing that I just remembered it when we talked about this probably a couple months ago was that Iran negotiations ago said basically they wanted a guarantee from the U.S. that we would never reimpose sanctions on them. So it's kind of like, how can you trust someone? Like that, that, that's like, oh, if your parents promise to never ground you again, you're going to say, oh, I'm never going to do anything bad again. If just to me that knows virtually nothing about this stuff compared to you guys, that just doesn't seem like a regime or a power that you should be negotiating with. If they're like, oh, yeah, if you lift this, then we're going to be great people the rest of our lives now. More just like by definition, it removes all possible leverage that we have. Right. So why would we, what fools we would be to, you know, but I wouldn't put it past our negotiators, really. Well, um, and of course, important to note, um, Matt, that the current Biden administration has no right to make any such agreement or any such claim uh, unless they bring it before the U.S. Senate as a treaty, which they will not do uh, because there's no way it would pass. Uh, so they're going to try to find we, – we've talked about this, I think, in previous uh, podcasts, but they will try to find various other mechanisms to deliberately restrain uh, U.S. power and U.S. options for their successors uh, in ways that are anti-constitutional. And and um, the executive branch maybe also is not able to mandate vaccines via OSHA. That could be another possible (laughs) a domestic (laughs) example of how they uh, get around that. Mm. I mean, clearly, this administration is willing to find any uh, method to achieve, you know, uh, their short sighted policy goal, uh, irrespective of what that actually does to uh, the broader constitutional system or the rule of law. And, and we see it, uh, we see it in the Iran deal. We see it, as you said, uh, Adam domestically as well. So what would, could you guys talk about what would downstream effects be if we do get back into the nuclear deal with them? And obviously that's very hard to decide or know because of how much of a wild card Iran is and just their history of not doing what they agree to do. The Iranian mullahs, these are the, these are the religious fanatics who run the country, fully intend to be a nuclear power. There's no, there's no doubt about it. They're not going to negotiate anything away. The only reason they're negotiating is to have a process that they can exploit and manipulate to buy them more time and to give them more access to the cash and the, and the material resources they need to complete their nuclear weapons program. So they have no motivation at all to ever come to a deal because that would defeat the purpose of them having a nuclear weapons program. And if they, if they don't have a nuclear weapons program, then they, they, they'll cease to be an important power in the, in the region. uh, If with the exception of sponsoring terrorism. I mean, and and if you look at how bold the Iranian regime is uh, even absent nuclear weapons, they will only grow bolder and more willing to engage in a vast variety of asymmetric warfare 
against uh, both the U.S. and uh, other regional powers uh, than they already are now, and they are certainly not shy about it now. Uh, I I think also, I mean, if we do end up with a with a Iran deal too, uh, we're going to see very serious strain uh, between the U.S. and her regional allies. The Israelis have made, I think, pretty clear that they will not stand back and watch the Iranians go nuclear. Uh, we, we've seen, you know, the, the Saudis struggling against uh, the Iranian proxy in Yemen, the Houthis. Um, and, and so th- these countries, which are long-term U.S. allies, are going to start making other choices if we do end up getting into a deal uh, with Iran. Yeah, and just think of the the other actions we're taking right on the forty second anniversary of the of the Iranian fanatics takeover of our embassy in Tehran in nineteen seventy nine, and the whole four hundred forty four day hostage crisis. The Iranian backed terrorists in Yemen take over our embassy, and and what did we do? What did we say? Nothing. Did we, did we make Iran pay a price for that? No, we made us, the Saudis pay a price for that, and the Saudis are our our partners in that region to try to keep Iranian influence out. So, so the, if the Iranians can take over our embassy in this almost symbolic way, then they know they can really have their way with us. So yesterday, um, the UN met with the Taliban's representatives. They're trying to get let into the UN, and. Thankfully, at least for now, it looks like they're not going to be led into the United Nations. Um, and I mean, number one, this wouldn't have happened if we hadn't withdrawn from Afghanistan the way we did. But number two, I think it's telling and a little concerning that they were let in to discuss this in the first place, right? It never should have come up. It was absurd even to treat it as a serious issue, which again shows our weakness in the region. I guess it's only absurd if you if you subtract the fact that Venezuela, Cuba, Iran are, are sit on these committees, right? I, I guess just the UN is absurd. Yeah. So is, is, put it does it way. speak more that the UN is <laughs> no. just a crappy organization? And I know why. I, I mean, just add the Taliban to the list of all those places. You, I, I guess, to be charitable, they see the state system as the a, a core principle. So any they're trying to figure out who the legitimate leader of a state is, and I guess they just have a really low bar. Or I guess, Matt, you said that they probably are not accepting this? Yeah, it looks like I, the there's a bunch of pieces that say that it's unlikely to be let okay. in, but all the articles say for now. So they're just leaving right. that door half open. That so I guess later down the road, if the Taliban's like, oh yeah, no, we're not going to behead people and treat women unfairly and force them well, into the marriages at these young ages and blah, 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 then they'll be let in. But well, who knows if those are the... Um, parameters but no yeah i think it comes down to they just it's such a um um lowest common denominator of any sort of morality or responsible regime that they i guess they just want everyone in it but it you know it it, you know the un was started as a it came out of the alliance uh the allies in world war ii and ever since then it's been watered down as to what it really means and now it is just a bizarre collection of uh, regimes, I think. Right, so maybe I guess it's encouraging that there's other organizations out there that are as crappy as we are here. (laughs) I guess. I I see it slightly differently because I see it as uh, 
almost holding out uh, a carrot for the Taliban. So they're not saying you can be a member now, but maybe in the future. And the things that they are asking for in exchange for membership are pathetically low requirements. You know, they talk about, you know, well, they have to form an inclusive government and and they, they have these catchphrases that don't actually mean anything, uh, have no actual um, enforcement mechanism or, or anything like that. And by the way, once they're granted, they can't be taken away. So holding out uh, an offer for UN membership for the Taliban, once that happens, I mean, they're in, uh, you know, very difficult to, to change that afterwards. When you say it can't be taken away, do you know if that's how do they measure that? Well, it's, I mean, they, they, uh, oh, they meaning, took meaning, it away from the Republic of China uh, right, and gave right. it to uh, <laughs> and gave it to the People's so, Republic of China. But uh, I mean, it, it would be very difficult to reverse. I would, I would think, um, unless there's a very clear change of regime control. I guess. Yeah, okay. but. And also the people with the, the same types of people with the arms control mentality would say, oh, no, we can't hold the Taliban to their word because if we cut them off, they'll launch terrorist attacks against us. So the Taliban will lead us around by the nose yet again. And, of course, they'll say we need the Taliban to be a good counterterrorism partner, uh, even though anyone with half a brain cell knows that that's not going to happen, uh, which is why our own defense department finally tweeted out a few weeks ago that, oh, the Taliban has not been a good counterterrorism partner. Right. I was going to say half a brain cell might be generous for (laughs) some of the people making those decisions. Well, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, it is. But this is, uh, you know, an example, whether it's the Iran deal or trying to negotiate and reach an agreement with the Taliban, uh, these people never give up no matter how many times uh, reality bites them in the rear. Uh, they just refuse to accept the reality or the nature uh, of any of these regimes uh, or the possibility that not everybody buys their sort of globalist shtick. So, you know, some people, notably the Taliban, don't care about going to cocktail parties in Davos. Uh, and our our diplomatic core uh, can't seem to understand that. So that's, well, just, I mean, just when we're talking about here, trying to make a deal with the Taliban, it just sounds weird to me personally. And I know they're, maybe they're not as bad as they used to be, if that's even a thing, but just why would, is it because we think, oh, if we make this arbitrary deal and let them into the UN, then they're going to be these great people. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. They're never going to kill anyone or whatever. Like, I don't understand why, what is motivation? They have some pragmatic interest now that they're running a country. Like, I guess you have some leverage over them because I gather they're, energy and food are running out because right i think their contracts were terminated or in any case the the just the up the upheaval that happened you know so i guess we have some leverage over them but i mean how many times adams adam are we going to let uh the notion that oh well you know now that they've taken power they have to moderate Uh, of course we said that about hamas uh it, it has never happened no, we gave up all the leverage when we gave them all the weapons and Bagram Air Base and, and the entire country and, and, and then talked about sending aid to them. And, of course, if they get US, UN recognition, they're going to get international aid, some of which directly or indirectly all of us will be paying for. 
and again, uh, going back to people on on you know our side benefiting from this, there are all manner of NGOs and uh, international organizations that are, I'm sure, champing at the bit to reopen offices and go back to work in Kabul uh, because they rake in millions of dollars to do their to do their work. Right, and they've spent the past twenty years building an industry for themselves. We call it we we we're helping you to help ourselves type of industry. And they, they, they speak the languages, they know the culture, they know the people. So they have all of this human uh, assets available so that they can then triple charge the federal government for going in to, as uh, aid and relief workers. It's all a very self-serving industry and it has not been run with very much oversight. Okay. So the U S is set to remove, um, FARC, which is this Colombian rebel group from our terrorism list, which once again, just reading that sort of sounds oxymoronic to me. You know, if you've already classified someone as a terrorist group, are you just going to take them for the word that they've changed and they're different? So what, I guess first, could you guys just give everyone listening a little background, what FARC is, and then what would be the motivation behind Biden getting rid of this designation for them? The FARC is a, a Colombian communist insurgency uh, that's been fighting since 1964 to turn Colombia into a communist country. And they, uh, they stand for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. That's what FARC means in Spanish. And they, they run a lot of the cocaine cartels. They have uh, destroyed uh, colossal areas of rainforest in order to do protection operations for cocaine growing they have assassinated uh, politicians and church people and missionaries and uh, uh, other civilians over the years. And they, they run rape gangs and human trafficking operations. And they've done this with impunity. They were all given amnesty for all of those crimes if they would simply join the peace process. And they were even given congressional seats. So these, without even being elected, they just said, okay, you'll get 10 congressional seats and these can be your people in the Colombian Congress. So it's this absurd situation that was brought about because Colombia was unable to deal with the insurgency and then a lot of uh, international pressure, both from left-wingers and for people who needed their cocaine, uh, got together to, to push for this peace process to let the FARC emerge intact with its terrorist leadership. And so this decision to delist FARC, uh, the Biden administration has been absolutely explicit that they are doing this in order to support this peace process, uh, in order to enable uh, the FARC group to act in a political manner publicly and and the like. So this is yet another example, uh, and I think we've beat this drum pretty hard uh, on the ineptitude (laughs) Wherever you go on the planet. <laughs> well, I was going to say, why don't, we, story. why don't we add these morons to the UN too? I mean, it, but I, I wanted, Mike, if you could talk a little bit about this uh, behavior by the U.S. of bringing these communist guerrillas into the government, because I think, uh, unless I'm mistaken, we've seen this behavior before uh, in Central America, have we not? Sure. You saw it in El Salvador where we had a, we were in, involved there in a really nasty war in the 1980s. We won the war against the insurgents until the very last minute when the Bush administration 
pulled the rug out from under the Salvadoran government and said, you'll, you will have a peace agreement with the communist guerrillas and bring them in and demobilize them and so forth, which, which is what happened. Uh, the country was run for 20 years by a democratically elected, very conservative free market, uh, set of presidents. And then the, uh, the, uh, communist guerrillas came in. And in fact, the one who became president, uh, one president ago, uh, was one of the five Soviet-backed commanders who was running the terrorist campaigns in the 1980s. So, so, and then they set up their own kleptocracy. So you have now El Salvador is a mess, and everyone got sick of 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 those that Communist Party as as the leader. So one guy split off, uh, became an Islamist, uh, and uh, Naib Bukele, and his 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 father went. I knew his father in the in the. 80s and I met Naib when he was a boy. Now he's president. Um, they're they're big jihadist supporters, but they also cut a deal to basically allow communist China to colonize the country. So this is what you get out of these peace deals. We were within a hair's breadth of of completely destroying those communist guerrillas. I was there at the time. I was assisting, and uh, and then the Bush the Bush people just pulled the rug out from under him. They couldn't have done that without. Uh, the Democrats pushing it much earlier anyway, but by by right after Reagan, you know, the Bushies were never into this kind of a conflict. They never wanted to, to defeat the communists anywhere, and they were always undermining those who did. And and they made alliances with people on the left here. But you had American politicians who were actively working with the communist guerrillas, sending them material aid, sending them financial aid, and even sending human hostages down there as as, as so-called aid workers or activists or whatever, putting them right in the middle of war zones to prevent the Salvadoran army from running effective counterinsurgency operations. One of them was a congressional staffer named Jim McGovern. He worked for Congressman Joe Moakley. When Joe Moakley retired from Congress, Jim McGovern, the congressional staffer with the communists in Central America, became Congressman Jim McGovern of Worcester, Massachusetts. And when the, uh, when the Colombians and the CIA killed a FARC commander in 2008, Ismael Reyes, they found Jim McGovern's emails to the FARC commanders in the middle of the terrorist campaign. So there's a lot of political influence at high levels in Washington who have been allied with the FARC this whole time, and they're working with the Biden team. Thanks for that amazing illumination of the Latin American examples. But to rewind a little bit, I think uh, maybe we can think of two uh, different types of uh, these political engagements. And the one would be the Middle East slash Islamist ones we were discussing with Iran. And then uh, in the Palestinian context, first the Palestinian Authority, which was secular Marxist and was brought in. And then the Islamist Hamas was brought in. And I think we at the center are generally agree that the, uh, you know, Islamist theology slash political um, situation is intractable. It, it can never, by definition, can't coexist uh, with our ideas of democracy. But d- despite the um, Islamic connections you just brought up with El Salvador, uh, it's you know, obviously the prevalent uh, nature is the communist slash Marxist. Uh, and... and you know, just because those you just described were disasters, I don't think necessarily that means in the Colombian context with FARC that this isn't maybe the best setup. And it does seem uh, Colombia has been the closest thing to a success story, generally speaking, economically. And our our um, 
security ties to them and this sort of thing. So, well, but maybe so maybe uh, it seems like in a lot of these situations, the drug trade, especially in Colombia, the drug trade is a key. What I was actually down there in 2019 as a, as a tourist, but just getting some information, people would whisper about, oh, the same amount of cocaine is coming. It's just been legitimized now. And um, do you, so I'll ask you, Mike, you know, is the legit legitimization of FARC something that for better or worse has has tamped down the open violence? And is that worth having them in the political conversation? Well, it's tamped down the the. Uh urban terrorist bombings and that kind of a thing and the rural insurgency uh it there but the war there really didn't affect the colombian population that much it was the enforcement operations for the cartels that was the real cause of the violence that affected most colombian people so the farc was a rural insurgency for the most part it remains to be seen whether they i mean they're not turning their backs on their legacy they're keeping their initials they're keeping their ideology they're keeping their operational relationship that they have with Hezbollah, whereas in other countries it's with Hamas, the Sunni uh, extremists. In with the with the FARC, it's with Hezbollah. It's the Iranian-backed Shia. Is that because of their ties to Venezuela? I think yes, yeah. and also because Hezbollah is expanding its operations in our hemisphere, but they're doing it through Venezuela as an anchor, and the Venezuelan dictatorship continues to allow the FARC. Uh, the military elements of the FARC to use their territory as sanctuary and as a base of operations. So I think it's dangerous to accept the FARC uh, because they they uh, they still have Venezuela to use as as a shelter for any reserve terrorist force they may choose to keep. So you, this political arrangement you think is not directly tied to the, um, the 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 big decrease in violence for the average Colombian or no? The violence has gone down for now. But I'm a firm proponent of destroying your enemy. And mm -hmm. we could have destroyed the FARC leadership had we wanted to. Instead, we're legitimizing them. Uh, and, and you know, rank and file people, people who grew up as FARC members, because the war went on for so long that babies were born into the FARC and grew up as FARC members. Uh, a lot of those rank and file people can be re rehabilitated and have been rehabilitated. But to allow the leadership to get off scot-free without and to become members of the government there, even though they can't win a legitimate election, uh, really defeats the whole purpose of having a democracy there. And I think especially we're, we're moving into an age of soft power where political manipulation and subversion by our enemies is, is really the leading tool. You know, having failed to seize control of Colombia for you know, what you said since the 1960s, Mike? Since 1964. Right. So what's that? Um, Long time. 60 years. Uh, you know, um, having failed to do that militarily, to then allow them to do that politically, it, it gets into the situation and that the United States finds themselves in all the time, which is we act as though we are only concerned with the violence. And we have no other interests or preferences other than as long as things happen peacefully, it's not a problem. While a communist Colombia and a communist-dominated South America, uh, which is in league with the Venezuelans and in league with the Cubans and in league with the Chinese, is a problem for American national interests. 
whether they do that through guerrilla war or they do it through political manipulation and subversion, that should change how we proceed to uh, combat them. But it shouldn't change the fact that we need to combat them. And yet you will see almost no one in the American government who is willing to say, yeah, we should oppose a FARC-dominated Colombia, regardless of whether they win elections or whether they fight guerrilla wars. Right. The mentality is, we don't mind the FARC taking power in Colombia. We just don't want them to be bloody about how they do it. It's absurd. But on the other hand, you can figure the Colombian people's uh, frustration with this war. FARC's been fighting since 1964. That's before the escalation of the Vietnam War. Can you imagine if we were at war for that long? So, I, you, but yet at the same time, we were providing enough intelligence to the Colombians that with a little more technology, we could have helped the Colombians drone all these FARC leaders and then start fresh once those guys were taken out of the scene. But an, a, a, another dimension, and not to sound like a left-wing critic of this, but... Uh, You're doing a good job. <laughs> I'm just here. No, uh, that, um, you know, the, another dimension of national security, and mainly now we, we uh, in the form of opiates uh, coming from China, and cocaine isn't quite as malignant as that. But um, again, I, I get the impression that the amount of cocaine is still flowing. So we've in some way uh, accommodated that, or there might, there's either money and interest or... Um, uh, or just the users in the United States will get it one way or another. Um, and I'm trailing off about the geopolitical significance. Well, I mean, I think you're, you're <laughs> right in the sense, Adam, that, you know, the U S should obviously be concerned about the, the drug flow, regardless of whether the drug traffickers involved are communists or capitalists, but likewise, we should be concerned with communists, uh, irrespective of whether they, uh, increase or decrease the drug flow. And, you know, we have interests that are a lot more uh, significant than than simply yes, no on some of these questions. And I think we, we sometimes allow ourselves to get blinded by metrics like is the cocaine flowing more or less to be the, the, the sole, sole sum of our interest, uh, which isn't to say that we shouldn't be trying to reduce it. Obviously, we should. Uh, but it's not a single source uh, issue. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you.